David, I'll hand over to you as you bring us our reading. Thank you. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on your unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives and all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. David, thank you for reading that. Um, If you'd like to follow it um, as I preach on it, you'll find it in Luke chapter 21, and uh, that's on page 1057. Uh, 1057, Luke chapter 21. Uh, Some of you may know that within um, most of the established churches around the world, and many of those that aren't, uh, there is a set of readings uh, set or suggested uh, throughout the year, in fact, on a three-year cycle, and uh, it's called the lectionary and the revised common lectionary for those of you who might be into such uh, terminology. Uh, and most of the year, we studiously ignore it. Um, not because I think it's a bad thing, but because our pattern here has been to work our way through books of the Bible or to work our way through particular themes. But traditionally, in Advent, we, um, we come back to it and we use the readings that are there and sometimes follow it into the new year. The great discipline of following the lectionary is that you end up preaching on stuff that never in your wildest dreams would you choose to preach on, this being one of those passages. Because when you start looking at Luke chapter 21, we're looking for it particularly between verses 25 and 36. And when you start delving into what it might mean, when you start looking at what um, uh, different commentators and writers have said on it, you discover that this is one of those tangled um, webs of passages with all sorts of themes coming in from all over the Bible and people have made entire academic careers by ploughing independent furrows on this is what it means or that, it, that is what it means. I have no intention at all whatsoever um, of uh, dulling your Sunday by giving you an academic lecture on what this might or might not mean. But I do want us to plunge into it because these are richly powerful words Um, And they're words, I think, that help us to get to grips with what Advent is meant to be for. 
I was saying to those who were gathering just before the service, we always gather together our children's group leaders and our uh, refreshments people and all the team involved in the service. I was saying to them, Advent isn't so much about preparing for Christmas, as if Advent's simply there to give us heads up that in four weeks' time it'll all be over. Advent is meant to be here to help us think beyond Christmas. It's almost like a run-up for a long jumper. You know, the run-up for the long jumper isn't to get them to the leaping-off point, it's to get them through the air beyond the leaping-off point. You could do a standing jump, but actually it's better to have a run-up. And if you like, Christmas is the leaping-off point for the Christian faith. But Advent gives us a run-up to Christmas, so that when we come to Christmas, we leap into the rest of the story of Jesus, life and death and resurrection. And what Advent is meant to help us do is to remember that when God comes in Jesus, it isn't the only time he will step into the world in which we live. That there will come a day when God draws a line under history and puts all that is wrong right, when he will wipe away every tear from every eye, when there will be no more death or sickness or mourning, or there will be no more fear or hopelessness or despair, when Jesus will come again and put all things right. Advent is to help us to see through Christmas, beyond Christmas, to the time when Jesus will come again. But what are we to make of these words of Jesus? They're not very comfortable words, are they? They're the sort of words that we sort of can hear with, and my deep, deep apologies to my American friends sitting here. For those of us who are British, we tend to hear this with a sort of American, um, slightly sort of um, uh, intense, uh, uh, cultish sort of sound, you know, um, uh, the, the world's going to be shaken, uh, there's going to be signs in the, the, you know, out, out there, there's going to be stars falling from heaven, and you think, no, 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 don't want to hear that. Scary stuff, weird stuff, odd stuff, almost cultish stuff. So what's Jesus talking about? Why is he saying it? Why on earth would we want to hear it today? Well, I want to suggest that the words of Jesus are to remind us that life is to be lived through Advent, with both a warning and a promise. A warning that life must not be lived as if it's never going to end. A promise that there is far more to life than just life itself. A warning not to live life blinkered as if it's never going to end. A promise that there is far more to life than just this life itself. A warning and a promise. Now, the first thing we need to do is tease this apart. I really hope you've got it in front of you. If you don't, do, um, do open your Bible, because it's quite a sort of a dense passage, page 1057. And the first thing that we've got to see is the context. Jesus is standing in and around the temple, and the temple represented for God's um, Old Testament people, ancient Israel, the temple represented the whole of who they were, really. It represented God's presence with them, It represented God's favour for them. It represented their identity as a people. It represented all God's promises towards them. Verse 20, which is just before the part that we had read for us, has Jesus continuing his warnings to them. And he says, when you see Jerusalem, which is where the temple was, being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. Jesus is giving a warning. And it's a warning of destruction. 
Now, actually, that particular warning was fulfilled no more than 40 years after Jesus spoke. Jerusalem, indeed, was surrounded by armies, the armies of Rome. The temple, indeed, was razed to the ground. It was a terrible day in the history of God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel. So it's appropriate that he then, in verse 25, at the beginning of our reading, begins to use language that his first hearers would have recognised as being, we would use the word quite commonly now, I guess, apocalyptic in overtones. There will be signs in the sun, moons and stars on the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. They were very familiar with that language. It was used quite commonly in uh, Greek writers, in Roman writers, but especially in the Hebrew scriptures. And it was the picture language for watch out, things are not as certain as you think. The world is not as firmly fixed as you might imagine. Nations will be thrown hither and thither. Politics will be uh, all ends up. Emperors will come and go. Armies will march. He's warning them that the world is not as fixed as we hope it is. Verse 26, people will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And then verse 32, just to sort of really um, uh, sort of get them focused, he says, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. In other words, you guys that are listening, this is you know, it's roughly AD 30, 30, 32, 33. You people that are listening, this generation won't have passed away and this will happen. And sure enough, 40 years later, that's exactly what did happen. The Roman army surrounded Jerusalem. There was a siege, there was the fall of the temple. Disaster, disaster upon disaster. Now at that point, you would be quite forgiven for closing your Bible and walking away. I mean, you know, remarkable that Jesus foretold it, the sort of end of story, not our problem. You know, a terrible thing to happen to them. That was nearly 2,000 years ago. Why on earth would we read this and think it was appropriate to Advent? Why on earth would it be uh, something significant for our ears to hear? Well, there's three clues, three uh, bits of language in what Jesus says that ought to make us sit up and take notice and see there's far more to it than meets the eye. The first is there in verse 27 and 28. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Now you and I just think that sounds slightly odd language, I guess. We don't often talk about the Son of Man coming in clouds and great glory. But for his first hearers, they'd have immediately got it. He was using language they were incredibly familiar with because it's from the book of Daniel, one of the Old Testament prophets, chapter 7. And in Daniel 7 to 8 and 9, Daniel has this vision. It's an incredible set of prophetic poetry where he speaks in, in alarming but, but remarkable and beautiful terms of how God, who has made all things, the creator, will fulfill his purpose for creation. And he won't simply do it at arm's length. He himself will come in clouds with great glory. The creator will become redeemer. The one who has made all things will rescue all things. The one who always intended there to be order rather than chaos will one day come and bring chaos to an end and draw a line under history and bring order. That's what Daniel 7, 8 and 9 was about. It's worth a read. I mean, it'll make your hair stand on in some ways. It's deliberately meant to make us sit up, take notice. Do you hear that in those two verses, 27 and 28, there is that warning and that promise? 
the warning. There'll be a coming in, in a cloud with power and great glory. There's something dramatic going to take place, and it's going to be in the context of the, the earth being shaken and all things being uh, in sort of tumult and upended. But here's the promise. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, again, that little word redemption for us doesn't mean a huge amount. You might redeem your nectar points or your Tesco club card points, but that's about as far as it goes. For the first hearers of Jesus, redemption meant something far bigger. If you were a slave, you were owned by somebody. If you wanted to be free, you had to be redeemed. Somebody had to pay the price for you. Somebody had to buy you back. You literally had a price on your head. You were somebody's property. And the Bible, from beginning to end, uses that picture language of slavery to say uh, it's as if we're owned by the chaos, darkness, and sinfulness of our own hearts, of our own world. Actually, that's not a big stretch for us to believe. Few of us really believe that we are utterly able to do anything that we want. Most of us could name at least one besetting sin or habit that we wish we could be free of. And we just, it might be a bad temper. It might be gluttony in my case. It might be uh, telling little lies to get out of difficult situations. It might, be, um, uh, it might be laziness. I mean, there's all sorts of ways in which even at our uh, sort of surface level, we know that we're not free to be entirely who we're meant to be. And the Bible says, well, even take it at that level, but take it right down to the root of the human heart. We need redeemed, we need rescued, we need bought back. There will come a day when God draws a line under history, puts all things right, and you will know that there's a price been paid to set you free, that you belong to him now, not to the slavery of sin. A warning and a promise. What about the fig tree? Verse 29, 30, 31. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. And even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Why does he tell the parable? I think he tells it for you and me, actually. I think Jesus tells his hearers about something that's going to happen to them in just 40 years' time. But these words of the fig tree are for the rest of us. Because what we're to see in the way that history unfolds, that every single generation that has ever lived on this planet sees things happen in their lifetime that make their hearts break, that make their legs turn to jelly, that make their minds confused. We've all lived through stuff over the last few weeks that made us feel exactly that. We live through them in our personal lives, when people that we love die. We live them through them in our national lives and on our world's life when things happen that feel like they shake the very foundations of what we once thought were okay. Each generation has their own. I remember as a teenager growing up, I can still feel it, that sense of dread about nuclear war. As a, as a young teen, when in the midst of the Cold War, you can tell how old I am, um, that sense of fear and, and that overriding sense of maybe the world isn't as certain as I thought it was. Maybe today the threat is of terrorism on our streets. Every generation has the fig tree. Every generation has that set of signs that says the world is not as it's meant to be. The world is not nearly as well-grounded and founded as we think it is. Life cannot be lived as if it has no end. Life has a full stop. And we don't even know when that full stop will come. But... 
says Jesus. If you watch the fig tree, if you actually take notice of it, rather than living life in blinkers, if you look, you'll see that summer is coming. Isn't that a wonderful little thing just to drop into a very dark moment? You'll see that summer is coming. With a fig tree, you know what the seasons are. He says, you'll know. Summer is coming. In the midst of all this disaster, in the midst of all that might make us tremble, we're meant to see that actually life will not always be like this. We're meant to recognise in the longing of our hearts for the world to be different, to be better, that God will make all things right. And what's the third clue that this has more to do, as much to do with us as it did to those people he was first speaking to? Well, the most obvious place is verse 35. Well, let's read 34 and 35. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. It's good teaching, isn't it? Any of you are uh, teachers, all of us have been in a classroom. The great teachers are one who's, ones who are able to get you really interested in something like this and then go, you see that? That shows us something about that. So we're doing this little experiment. You're fascinated in it. It's great switching on a Bunsen burner and seeing the test tube. Well, you see that? It's to do with this. Or you see this particular little moment in history, this little individual. Well, that shows us something about this. So here's Jesus, focusing on something that would happen within the lifetime of many of those who are going to hear him. A disaster upon disaster, on the place that they thought of all things else in life, everything else may change, but the temple will stand forever, they thought. There's plenty of other places in the Gospels where Jesus has exactly that conversation with them. But Jesus says, you have to look at this thing that's going to happen, this terrible event, and it's meant to make you go, oh, On the one hand, this warning, life is not as stable as we think it is. Life is not as sure and certain. Life has a full stop, and we never know when the full stop is going to come. But this promise of hope, this promise of hope, don't be weighed down, he says, by the stuff that blinkers you to the reality of life. Instead, lift up your heads and see for real that there will one day come One like a son of man, riding on clouds. Great picture language of power and glory and a sort of overarching, that's it. This is the end. The one to whom you can lift your heads as you stand up. The one who will bring summer to a world of winter. The one who will bring the kingdom of God near. For some of us, that will happen in our lifetime. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe for all of us it will happen after our lifetime. There will become our full stop in our lives first. But then there will be a new life that we're given. Something beyond. A life beyond life. Because there is more to life than just this life. There is more to this world than the world as we know it today. There is more to history than simply having to whistle in the dark, keep our fingers in our ears and our eyes firmly shut and hoping that it will all go away. Do you know, this connects with virtually everything we've thought about today. It connects into the work of Viva. Because what Viva do is not pretend that the world is a perfect place and let's all just get on with our lives and hope we don't have to worry about it. Viva steps with its partners around the world into the darkness of the lives that children around the world have to live. And it says, we're going to bring you a taste 
of what's to come, a taste of hope, a taste of new life, a taste of God's love. Not as a whistling in the dark, but as a promise of what's to come. It connects in with the climate change march today. Because when Christians are talking about climate, we're not simply being sort of, uh, you know, ecologically right on for the sake of it. We're saying this world belongs to God. And one day God is going to draw a line under history and remake this world as it was always meant to be. We're not simply meant to treat this world as if it's a disposable. God loves this world. He made it. He said it was good. We're to care for it, look after it, as a sign of the redemption that will come. As we think of someone we miss from our own congregation, as each of us carries in our own hearts people that we miss today and every day, as many of us carry in our own bodies that sense of bodies that aren't what they're meant to be and lives that are hard work and darkness that sometimes sits very heavily on our shoulders, Advent says to us, Being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, isn't about whistling in the dark. It's not about pretending everything's all right when it's not. It's not about having to put on a brave face and be smiley when we don't feel it. The Christian faith, the following of Jesus, is about declaring there are days when we're in anguish and perplexity, when the life feels like the roaring and tossing of a sea. There are days when our legs go weak and wobbly because the world is a scary place. But when we see these things... Stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is a day nearer. Because there will come a day when God draws a line under history, puts all things right, when your life is known to be redeemed, when the world in which we live is redeemed. That's where we're leaping to for Christmas, from Christmas. That's the run-up that Advent gives us as we run towards Christmas Day and we leap from the birth of Jesus, his first coming, towards the day when he will return in hope. Not a hope, but a sure and certain hope that this world is not alone, that there's more to life than life itself, that wherever the full stop comes in our lives, there is a new chapter to be written in the life of the world to come. Let's pause. Let's close our eyes, maybe. We've got a little bit of time and space. Just in the relative quietness. Let's bring to God our hearts as they are. Let's bring to God whatever it is that today is weighing us down. or the thing that makes us afraid of the future or uncertain of our direction. For some of us, it will be simply a sense of our own mortality. For others, it will be a frustration that life is not as it's meant to be. For any of us, it might be simply what we see in the news. We come to the God who has never and will never let go of us or the world that he has made. We look ahead, we run down the, the running track towards Christmas in the sure and certain knowledge that the one who stepped into history 2,000 years ago, who lived in the darkness with the light of God, will one day return. And in the meantime, we commit ourselves to stand up, to lift up our heads, and to believe that our redemption is a day nearer today than it was yesterday. Jesus, come by your Holy Spirit, we pray. 
Fill our hearts with confident hope. Give us light in the darkness. Give us strength in our weakness. Give us courage in our fear. Give us joy even in our sadness. Give us eyes that see the coming King, the one who will return and put all things as they were meant to be. In Jesus' name. Amen.